0: Well, it's hard to believe, uh, but less than 150 years ago, finding yourself in a hospital operating theatre would have been a dreadful prospect. Uh, The fact is, in those days, many of the people who were operated on died. And not as a result of the surgery, mind you, but as a result of post-operative infection. Uh, In those days, operating theatres, you see, were filthy, crowded spaces where surgeons wore blood-encrusted aprons, didn't routinely wash their hands, no one realising that perhaps this was the reason why patients kept dying. That is, until a man named Joseph Lister thought that maybe it would be a good idea for doctors to always wash their hands before surgery and wear clean gloves and, and gowns. He was the one who thought that maybe it would be a good idea to actually sterilise surgical instruments before using them on people, as well as disinfecting operating theatres and and patients' dressings, too. And the results were extraordinary. Uh, Death rates from post-operative infections plummeted, and Joseph Lister is now regarded by many as the father of modern surgery. And... There's even an antiseptic mouthwash named in his honour. Yes, Listerine. But it's ironic, isn't it, that for so long the doctors who were trying to save their patients were at the same time inadvertently causing their deaths. Well, as we turn again now to the book of 2 Kings, we see that the nations of Israel and Judah are very, very sick, spiritually sick and in need of a serious uh, operation to remove the the spiritual cancer that has taken root. Uh, You might remember that evil King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel had introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom, Israel. And not only that, they had killed many of God's prophets too. Uh, They were wicked people who, who did as they pleased, They even killed a righteous man by the name of Naboth, along with his his sons, in order to steal his vineyard. Do you remember that? And they thought they'd gotten away with it too. But God, through the prophet Elijah, announced that that they would be judged for their sin. That he, God, would destroy Ahab's whole family. Well, today as we reach the second half of 2 Kings chapter 8, Uh, About 12 years have passed since God pronounced the judgment on Ahab. Uh, Since then, Ahab has indeed been killed. But Jezebel still remains. And Ahab's wickedness now lives on through his son, King Joram. But the situation is even worse now. Because Ahab's wickedness has spread into the southern kingdom. Through a marriage alliance between Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, and Jehoram, king of Judah. Here, let me put a family tree up on the screen so you can keep track of of who's who in today's story. Okay, so here we've got the northern kingdom, here's the southern kingdom. Uh, Here we've got King Ahab, who was married to, to Jezebel. He's now dead, and his son, Joram is king of Israel, and Ahab's daughter, Athaliah has married the southern king, Jehoram. And so it's through her that Baal worship has now infected Judah. Hear me with me from 2 Kings, chapter 8, verse 18. 2 Kings, chapter 8, verse 18. That's page 579 of the church Bibles. He, that is King Jehoram, Follow the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So now you see, Ahab's evil influence has spread into Judah. Uh, When King Jehoram dies, his son, Ahaziah, takes the throne in Judah. But under his mother, Athaliah's influence... Baal worship continues in the south. When Ahaziah decides to team up with his uncle King Joram from the north to fight against the nation of Aram, they're defeated. Uh, Uncle Joram is wounded and heads back to the northern city of Jezreel to recover. And Ahaziah comes to visit him. A fact that will become quite significant later in today's story. But hopefully you can see how even though he's dead, Ahab's evil influence continues through his descendants. Not only in the northern kingdom, but in the southern kingdom too. And so now, God does something about it. His prophet Elisha sends one of his apprentices to visit a man named Jehu, who is a commander in the northern kingdom's army. And this prophet anoints Jehu as the new king in the north, commissioning him with the specific task of wiping out King Joram and the entire family of Ahab. Here, read with me from chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you, king, over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel... "'Dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel "'and no one will bury her.' "'Then he opened the door and ran.'" Apparently he lay for another appointment or something like that. So Jehu is anointed king of Israel and tasked with purging the land of Ahab's wickedness and avenging the innocent lives he had slaughtered. After the prophet leaves, Jehu goes out and tells his friends what's happened. And they immediately band around him as his new loyal subjects. And together they head off to Jezreel, where, of course, as you remember, Kings Joram and Ahaziah are both staying. Well, when the lookout at Jezreel announces that he sees armed men coming towards the city, King Joram sends out a horseman to investigate Do you come in peace, the horseman asks? To which Jehu essentially replies, Peace, peace, not on your life. And if you value your life, you'll fall in behind me. At which point the horseman wisely complies. When he doesn't come back, King Joram sends out a second horseman. But the exact same thing happens. Jehu says, fall in behind me. And the horseman does. As Jehu's rebel army gets closer and closer to the city of Jezreel, the watchman notices that one of them is tearing up the road like, like, like Vin Diesel in The Fast and the Furious. And so he correctly concludes that, that it must be Jehu. Apparently he's got a reputation for being a bit of a speed demon. And with that, both kings decide to ride out and see for themselves what's going on. He read with me from chapter 9, verse 21. Chapter 9, verse 21. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied? as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot, in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan, Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Ger, near Ibliam, But he escaped to Megiddo and died there. And so, now, both kings of the north and the south have been killed. And justice has been served as Joram's body is dumped on the very plot of land his father Ahab had stolen from Naboth. Next, Jehu heads on into the city of Jezreel to, to finish off Jezebel. When she hears what's happened and that Jehu's coming for her, she calmly puts on her royal makeup and fixes her hair and glares out the window, her upstairs window, counting on her eunuch bodyguards to protect her. When Jehu arrives, She fearlessly insults him. But he boldly urges her eunuchs to come join him. Seems they don't need too much convincing. They push Jezebel out of the window and she falls to her death. Talk about a dramatic downfall. And then, while Jehu takes over the palace, Elijah's prophecy that Jezebel's body would be eaten by dogs comes true. And so the wicked queen's reign of terror finally comes to an end. But the house of Ahab still remains. In fact, King Joram has 70 brothers, any one of whom could now claim the throne of Israel. These 70 heirs were being very carefully guarded at the capital city, Samaria. And so military genius that he is, Jehu writes a challenge to the guardians of these 70 heirs. In effect, Jehu says to them, Okay guys, who's next? Which son of Ahab do you choose to be your next king? Tell me and then prepare for battle. Well, the guardians realise that there there is no way they can beat Jehu. And so they they reply, saying, uh, 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 we are are your loyal servants, Jehu. We'll, We'll do whatever you tell us to do. To which Jehu replies, that heads must roll. Here, read with me from chapter 10, verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter, saying, if you are on my side and will obey me, Take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. So, like the horsemen and like Jezebel's eunuchs, the guardians, in effect, Falling behind Jehu and now the house of Ahab is completely annihilated and having ensured that Ahab's family are well and truly purged from the land, Jehu now turns his attention to the problem of Baal worship. He calls a public meeting and cunningly declares his great devotion to Baal. You think Ahab loved Baal, he says. Well, wait till you see my great love for him. And so with a a false sense of security, all the priests of Baal gathered together for a great celebration. Here, read with me what happens next from chapter 10, verse 23. Chapter 10, verse 23. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Look around and see that no one who serves the Lord is here with you, only servants of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now, Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I am placing in your hands escape, it will be your life for his life. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in And kill them. Let no one escape. So they cut them down with a sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out. And and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal. And burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal. And tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. And so you see. Thanks to Jehu. Baal worship is finally flushed out of Israel. Thank you. (laughs) Jehu has successfully purged the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel from the land and made them pay for the terrible, terrible atrocities they had committed. But sadly, it seems... Jehu's great zeal for the Lord has its limits, as we see now in the final analysis of his reign. Hear with me from chapter ten, verse twenty-eight. Chapter ten, verse twenty-eight. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and and have, have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. What a disappointing end for Jehu, don't you think? Uh, So disappointing. I mean, why, why, why? Why does he so so wholeheartedly purge Ahab's Baal worship from Israel and then so foolishly promote the worship of the golden calves? Well, no doubt, for the same reason his predecessor, Jeroboam, made them in the first place. Uh, to maintain political power, to stop the Israelites from going down to Jerusalem to worship, as God had commanded, to prevent the two kingdoms from reuniting, which which would, of course, jeopardise his throne. And so sadly, the decline of Israel continues under Jehu. Uh, God allows the nation to lose more and more territory. Uh, Eventually, Jehu's own house gets slaughtered in yet another coup. And in the end, Israel is wiped out altogether. what a disappointment. What a great disappointment. The problem, of course, with Jehu's purge of sin in Israel was the fact that he himself needed purging. You see, he he was a bit like a a surgeon operating on his patient to remove a, a malignant, sinful tumour. But Jehu's hands were were, were filthy with his own sin. And so in the end, he couldn't bring Israel the the full cleansing it needed. In fact, rather than bringing healing, his actions actually contributed to Israel's decline. If only the people of God had had a king with clean hands. One who could purge wickedness and bring about justice once and for all. Of course, what they really needed was someone someone like Jesus, wasn't it? King King Jesus, who who was always careful to keep the law of God with all his heart. And the king who will one day ride out with, with his invincible army to bring about The ultimate purge, one that will make Jehu's look like a a genteel tea party. Here, read with me the description of this coming dreadful day from Revelation chapter 19 up on the screen. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. It's Jesus. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, like King Jehu, Jesus will be unstoppable. But unlike Jehu, Jesus will reign forever. And no wickedness will ever be found in his kingdom. And so friends, if this is indeed the the, the reality of the situation, then what should we do? Well, I think that there is only one wise, logical thing we can do, isn't there? We've got to, we've got to fall in behind. You know, like, the, like the horseman sent out to meet Jehu outside the city of Jezreel. We've got to fall in behind King Jesus. In other words, we've got to give him our, our, our allegiance and submit to him. Like the the guardians of the 70 sons. Like the eunuchs. Unlike Queen Jezebel. We're going to realise that we we have met our match in King Jesus. We're going to put up our hands and and say, Jesus, Jesus, I surrender. I am yours. I, I am your servant. You are my king. And friend, if we do, then the great news is that Jesus will always hold out a hand of peace regardless of what sin we've committed, what judgment we deserve. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus came the first time, to to give his life that we might be rescued from God's coming wrath against sin. Galatians chapter 1 puts it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to offer peace and forgiveness to all who would call on him as Lord and Saviour. But the next time he comes, it will be to judge the living and the dead. And so what should we do? Well, we should fall in behind him today before it's too late. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have not yet called on Jesus as your King and your Saviour, then can I implore you to ask him for the forgiveness of your sins today and to not put it off any longer for we never know when he is coming back nor when we will die and we need to be ready. So come to him today and offer your whole life to him in in his service today following him as your commander. And what will that look like? I mean, does falling in behind Jesus now mean we should zealously go about killing in his name? Well, actually, yes, it does. Didn't expect that, did you? Now, I don't mean killing in some kind of bloody purge like Jehu's, but rather being totally ruthless when it comes to exterminating our sin. Colossians chapter 3 puts it this way. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, Impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Friends, the fact is, all Christians will be sinners until the day we die. But we must never settle for sin in our lives. Rather, we fight and we kill. We go after it with a vengeance. Vengeance. Now that our King Jesus has freed us from the power of sin, we're to purge it from our lives, to do whatever it takes to to, to break free. Because one thing that is abundantly clear from today's passage is that God takes sin very, very seriously. And now we must too. Friend is God putting his finger on a particular sin in your life this morning? Good. Excellent. Praising for that. He has just given you your next target. Your next mission, your next kill. Perhaps you're thinking, yeah, Warren, I know, but you you don't understand. I've tried, I've tried before, and I just can't seem to overcome this sin. It's too powerful. I can't change. Oh, I know that feeling. But friend, think for a moment about the seemingly impossible enemies Jehu took on today. And defeated with God's help. I mean, he he took on not one, but two powerful kings. He took on 70 well guarded princes. He took on the deeply rooted religion of Baal. My goodness, he even took on the diabolical Jezebel and won. He won. So don't ever think that your sin is impossible to overcome, that your battle's too hard. And how did Jehu do it? I mean, what was his battle plan? Well, for starters, I I guess he believed in his cause, didn't he? I mean, he, he hated what Ahab's family and the worship of Baal had done to his country. He hated it. So let me ask you, do do you hate your sin? Do you hate it? Do you you hate seeing what it does to you and and to those around you and to the honour of God? Do you hate your sin? Does it pain you? Does it pain you to know how much it grieves the God who gave his only son to save you from it? Do you hate your sin? See, Jay, who believed in his cause, and friends, we must too. But what else did he do? Well, he made pretty good use of his allies, didn't he? You know, re- recruiting all sorts of people around him to help him overcome the enemy. So, what about you? Who, who can help you overcome the enemy? I guess God in his kindness has given us one another, hasn't he? See, that's one of the reasons why we're so big on everyone here being regular to church and, and, and regular in a Bible study. So we can help one another in all kinds of ways, including this. Friend, if you're struggling with some sin, then then why not tell a a trusted brother or sister about it? And and ask them to to pray for you. and, And to keep you accountable. Because we can help one another in this battle. So Jehu believed in his cause and he made good use of his allies. But what was the most important thing he did? Well, he listened to and believed the word of God, didn't he? God's prophet had promised him the victory. And that gave Jehu the courage to go after it. And what has God promised you in his word? Well, he has promised that no temptation will be impossible to overcome. And that he will always provide a way out. He's promised that his grace is bigger than your sin. And he's promised that nothing will ever separate you from his love. And so friend, the next time you're tempted to sin, will fill your mind with the promises of God in his word. And then call out for his help knowing that he will always be with you and that he is always for you. Yes, even when you stumble and fall. Friend Jehu had all the resources of heaven behind him in his impossible battle. And you know what? So do you. So let's fight on with conviction and courage and with great confidence. As we'll sing in a moment, let's go bravely into battle, knowing that he, our King Jesus, has already won the war. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so very, very much for sending your Son, Jesus to save us from our sins and to give us an eternal place in your kingdom. Oh, Father, we confess that, that even as your forgiven people, we do continue to struggle with sin in our lives. So, Father, please help us to, to hate it as you do and to be quick to repent of it. Please uh, lead us to friends who can help us in our fight. Please uh, bring your word to our minds when we're tempted. And Father, please lead us into victory for the glory of your name.